This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Uh, we are in a series going through the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a book in the New Testament. It's written by the Apostle Paul to a church that was, well, really messed up. It was a troubled church. Uh, they had a lot of difficulties, and uh, he is writing to them to uh, help them. And today we're going to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're really just going to concentrate on two verses, verses 6 and 7. If you don't have a Bible, under the seat in front of you, uh, there's a Bible. You can pull that out and turn to page 555, and that's where I'll be reading from today, page 555. And then you'll just be able to track along and see that what we're saying is coming you know, from the text. This is what we do. We just read the Bible, and then we try to explain it and then try to apply it to our lives. So it's a pretty simple, pretty simple process. Um, and uh, this is really calling this the heart of the problem. There's been four chapters uh, des- de- describing problems in this church. And this passage really gets to the heart of the problem and really begins to show what is the problem in Corinth. So let's read verses. Uh, well, I'm going to go back to the beginning. Last week we talked about being judgmental judgmentalism. So I'm going to read that section as well, verses one through five, and then we'll concentrate on verses six and seven today. First Corinthians four, verse one. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have, in today's verses, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, and we just confess today that we need to hear from you. We need your word to address us and speak to us. We're dependent on you. We just sang, Lord, we need you every hour, and uh, we, we confess that today. So I pray that you would speak to us from this text. I pray that lights would go on in our minds, that where there's darkness, you would turn on the light and show us our hearts, Lord. Uh, I pray that you would show us our need for you. I pray that not only that, but you would forgive us where we've sinned and you would give us hope to change and to view others as you view them. Lord, I pray that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ as we go through this passage today and that we would, uh, we would see you in your glory and be drawn to you. Lord, help us. Help us to be a church that reflects the truths that we're about to study, that we are those who really love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, Paul begins this section by explaining that the exercise he's been going through uh, with the Corinthians is for their benefit. So what he's been doing is in the previous chapters, Paul has been talking about himself and how he views himself and how the church should view him. And he said, the reason I've done all this is for your benefit. He's verse six, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. So the Corinthians are thinking of themselves in ways that they shouldn't. When he says what is written, he's talking about the Bible. He's saying that you believe things about yourself that the Bible doesn't say about you. You, you think of yourself actually too highly. And so I've been giving an example for you to follow. So for instance, he said, Apollos and I, who are leaders in the church, um, we're just servants. That's all we are. We're just here to serve. We're, we're stewards. We're managing something that belongs to someone else, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're given to what's mean. We're servants who would give ourselves to do menial tasks. So he's saying, I've been saying all that about myself, basically, so you guys would get a clue and you'd be able to see the model of how the gospel impacts someone and how we identify ourselves once we have been impacted by the message of Jesus Christ. Don't go beyond what is written. We don't want you to think of yourselves in ways that aren't true to scripture. And then he says that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Oh, what, this is a really a vivid picture. The Corinthians, the, the reason they're divided is because they're a proud people, an er, self, a sinfully proud people. And he's saying, uh, you know, you guys, I don't want you to be puffed up. They are, they have inflated. He uses this picture puffed up. I think of like a puffer fish that just is kind of blown up. That's their ego. They have these inflated egos. They're swollen with pride. They look at themselves and their group and they look at other groups and they look down upon them because they, are, they, they have this inflated self-assessment. They're puffed up with arrogance. And Paul says, I don't want that for you. And that's why I've been talking to you the way I have. And then what he does is he turns the spotlight from himself and Apollos and stops evaluating himself. And he puts the spotlight on the Corinthians and God puts it on us. And he asks them three questions. And that's what we're going to focus on today. He asked them three questions. They are x-ray questions that look right into the heart of the Corinthians. And the Corinthians are divided. They're argumentative. They're arrogant. But now he's going to turn these questions to help get their attention so that they'll assess where they really are. Verse 7, here's the first question. For who sees anything different in you? Who sees anything different in you, he asks them. Now, the New American Standard, which is a translation that it's a little bit more, perhaps we could say literal. Sometimes it's a little wooden in its translation, but a little bit more stiff and literal in, in the way it translates. But here's how it translates that question from the Greek into English. For who regards you as superior? That's what Paul's asking them. Who regards you as superior? It could be translated, what distinguishes or who distinguishes you? Who makes you different? I mean, just in the most blatant way possible. He's saying, who do you think that you are? That's what he asked the Corinthians. Who do you think that you are? Winston Churchill was once speaking of a political opponent of his named Attlee. And he described Attlee this way. He said, he is a humble man with much 
to be humble about. With classic Churchill wit. Uh, And what Churchill said is really true. It's really true of Churchill. And it's really true of all of us. It's true of the Corinthians and it's true of us. We have much to be humble about. But the Corinthians had completely lost their, their connection to reality. They didn't see all that they really had to be humble about. This question, what distinguishes you as superior to anyone else, is intended to startle the Corinthians. He asked this to sort of wake them up, that, that they would they'd be careful about how they're judging people, how they're speaking, how they're dividing themselves among other people, how they're assessing themselves as better than other members of the congregation. He asked them this question, who distinguishes you? Who sees anything different in you? Who makes you superior? He asked them to wake them up. They are, they are a people that are divided over numbers of issues in the church. For instance, earlier in the letter, he talks about how various members of the Corinthians are identifying with leaders. So some people say, I'm of Paul. And other people say, I'm of Apollos. And other people say, I'm of Peter. They're saying, I'm like this leader. I'm with him. I'm with him. I'm with him. And they're dividing themselves from one another. Later, we're going to see that when they come together and have the Lord's Supper, it's around a meal. And what happens is the rich people get there earlier. They have plenty of food, plenty to drink, and they're eating and drinking and literally getting drunk before they take the bread and the wine for the Lord's Supper. Poorer people evidently come later and there's no food left for them. They don't, they don't care about those who don't have, maybe those who were working out later before they could make it into the dinner. And so the rich are divided from the poor. And and the certain in-group, the haves, are separating themselves and judging the have-nots. There's another way they're divided. They're divided around spiritual gifts. When we get into like chapters 13 and 14, 12, 13, and 14, we'll see that some of the people thought they were super spiritual because of their gifts, especially those who spoke in tongues. They, they thought that was the primary gift, and they, they sought to show that gift off, to put it on display when they gathered together in their meetings. And so Paul has to explain to them, hey, look, every gift matters. It's like a body. Every part of the body matters. He has to tell them these very basic things because they're dividing themselves. They're looking down upon other people. You see, almost all of the divisions in Corinth can be traced to this subtle thought. I am somehow better than someone else. I am somehow different than other people. I'm, I'm distinguished from those people over there somehow. I am superior in some way. This idea, which he questions, who regards you as superior? That question, that attitude is the source of all of the divisions. Doesn't matter if it's over spiritual gifts, if it's over wealth, if it's over what leaders do you follow, does not matter. In every one of them, there is the idea that somehow I am associated with this group and I am better. You are associated with that group. I'm superior to you. And this is all happening in the church. It's all happening in the church. What a stinging question. Who regards you as superior? Now, this text has countless applications, doesn't it? Last week, we talked about being judgmental and judging others. That has a lot of applications. This text has a lot of applications, but isn't it providential that we would land on this text 
asking us, the Holy Spirit of God from the scripture asking us, who regards you as superior? Isn't it interesting that we would land on this text on the weekend of the Martin Luther King holiday? Because that was the message that he carried. That was the message that he carried, that one is not superior from another based on the color of their skin, their race, or anything else. That was the message he carried at a time when our country had tremendous racial turmoil. And he heralded a message that asked that question, how can we judge any group of people as superior or any group of people as inferior based upon the color of their skin? This text really identifies the burden of the message he and other leaders in the civil rights movement uh, advocated with their nonviolent protests to win justice for all people. Around this time of year, during this holiday, I will sometimes go back and watch the I Have a Dream speech. I mean, it'd be hard to find a, um, a more moving speech, a political speech, ever, it was more than a political speech, but ever given, certainly a moving speech. And sometimes I'll go back and read sections of it like I did yesterday. I went and pulled it up and read sections of it, or or actually read the whole speech, uh, delivered in 1963. Um, And the burden of that speech is really the burden of the passage we're looking at. What makes you any different from anyone else, Paul asks uh, lovingly. I'm going to read a section of it. Now, the danger in me trying to read it is instantly in your head. If you're familiar with it, you'll hear his cadence and his uh, sort of articulacy, which is going to be better than mine. So I'm not even going to try to imitate the cadence of his speech or something like that. I'm just going to read it flat rather than delivering a speech. I'm going to read it flat. But this is the most familiar section of the speech. And in that speech, it really highlights, I'm not inserting this speech uh, this Sunday into the text. I think this text, uh, I think this speech reflects this text as a good example. If we uh, seek to understand this text, here's a great example of how he expressed it uh, with regard to uh, racial injustice in the 1960s. He said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today 
I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. It's powerful, isn't it? The blast image is a biblical image. And I think it's powerful that it's a biblical image because for his dream to be fulfilled. And by the way, obviously today, many things have changed uh, in our culture and many things are better, but there is much work to be done as the last couple of years has shown as we enter into the week of inauguration of a new president. And we're in a country that's very racially divided right now. So there is much, much work yet to be done. And when I, when I read, read that section of the speech, what was so moving to me is that the hope that he has is that the glory of the Lord would be seen in bringing people together. See, it is the church that is called to make the difference. It is the church, the, the, the uh, the, the government can make laws, but only the Lord Jesus can change a heart. Only the Lord Jesus can give a love in one person's heart for someone who's of a different race than them. Only the Lord Jesus can make a rich person and a poor person love one another and walk out their life together caring for one another. Only the Lord Jesus can take an older person and a younger person and join their hearts together and say, though we have many cultural differences, we have this in common, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and what he is talking about is a vision that, that the people of God would be integrated and ultimately that integration happens around the gospel. And that's what Paul is talking about here. The problem at Corinth, understand the context of this passage is not racial uh, separation in the church, but it is a kind of judgment that I'm judging you because you're a part of that group. And I'm judging you because you're a part of that group. So it's very similar and it's all rooted in sinful pride. Because pride, sinful pride, is at the root of all feeling that I'm distinguished as superior to another person, better than another person. The idea that I'm subtly entitled, I'm subtly more deserving than another person. The idea that I'm somehow special by nature in comparison to someone else. In other words, they're not as special as I am for this reason or that reason. That's what's going on with the Corinthians. I am of this group, the Apollos group. We're better than the Paul group, etc. Now, if we are honest, if we're honest, we would all have to admit that we wrestle with certain kinds of judgment. We talked about that last week, judgment of other people. We all wrestle with certain kinds of prejudice of other people that we implicitly at least value we value certain people at times because they're a part of a race or a group over another group of people. It's easy for all of us to subtly look down on another person. It might be someone who speaks broken English in our country. It might be someone uh, who, who, who struggles with the language. And we hear that and we sort of make an assessment about them that we know something about them and we think less of them because they don't speak this language as clearly. They may speak four or five other languages, but they don't speak this language as clearly. And so we somehow look down upon them. Someone whose customs, their family customs are different than ours. Someone who dresses differently. Someone who's the youth culture of that particular group. 
uh, looks a different way than my particular group, perhaps. Or maybe it's something like someone, something as minor and frankly as silly as their food is different. I remember walking in my previous neighborhood one day and walking by a house that just had, I mean, this was like a regular neighborhood. These weren't uh, attached houses. These were, uh, you know, individual homes. And I remember walking by a house and they had their windows open or whatever. And I just smelled a strong uh, smell of a certain type of food. It It was an ethnic food. And I remember just making an assessment thinking like, what, what, that smells so strong. Why, why don't they have their windows shut if they're going to be smelling, having that smell? I was making some kind of an assessment of them. Now, here's the thing. If they had been cooking burgers, I probably would have gone and said, wow, I hope they invite me over, you know, because I like the smell of uh, cooked uh, meat on the grill or whatever. But this was a different, just a different smell, not a good, not a bad, just different. I remember thinking it's different. Why don't, why just something in my heart, that thought just for a moment, why, why don't they shut their windows and like keep that strong just keep that to themselves. Just making an assessment about them, judging them. It's so subtle, so subtle. But somehow the smell of my food is superior to theirs. Do you see what I'm saying? It can be a very small, very small thing. Subtle assessments about a person that we, we connect them to a group. That's what's happening here. You are of Paul, you are of Paul. So we look at someone and we judge them and we connect them to a group and we sort of prejudge them, not on the content of their character, as Dr. King said, but on their race or what they, the group that they are a part of. So we look at someone, we look at their ethnicity and we can make a judgment about them. Oh, I see that person, they're that race. So that means they must be hardworking. I see that person, they're of that race. That means they must be lazy. I see that person, they're of that race, they must be smart. I see that person of that race, they must be privileged. I see that person of that race, they must be rude because people in that race are pretty direct and kind of rude to my thinking. I see that person in that race, wow, they might be a criminal. I see that person in that race, well, they're probably illegal. They're here illegally, probably. I see that person in that race, well, they might be immoral. I see that person, that race, well, they're probably very religious because they're part of that race. Or how about this? I see that person, that race, they're probably a racist. Is that ironic or what? (laughs) I'm going to judge that person, that race as a racist uh, just because they're part of that race. That's the definition of racism, by the way. So there it is. But we can do that. It runs so deep in all of us, in the human heart. And it's because of pride. Pride wants me to feel better about me. And oftentimes that means that I need to look down upon others to do so. And that is just evil. And how tragic it is. It's tragic that we still live in a world where that happens. But it's, it's somewhat understandable. In a, it's not acceptable. But it's understandable in a, in a world where people don't know Christ. And people are, we're all sinners. It's understandable that some pride, the, the sin of pride, which we all have, would express itself in racism in some places. Not acceptable. Dishonoring to the Lord. It's sin. But it's at least understandable when people don't, who don't know the Lord sin. It's even more grievous when it comes into the church, though, because we're to model the exact opposite. And here's the grievous fact that sometimes the church is even behind the culture. We should be setting the way. We should be a city set on a hill. We should be the light in the darkness. But sometimes this, the, the, the church is behind the culture. Over the Christmas break, I read a uh, memoir 
by President Jimmy Carter. He wrote it, it's called, I think it's called A Full Life, I forget, but he wrote it at age 90. I mean, can you imagine writing a book at, regardless, I mean, that's just amazing. He wrote a book at 90. And then he read the audible, the audio book. He read it. I don't know if he's 91, 92. I have no idea. But he read it at that age. I mean, I'd just be happy to be speaking at 90, uh, much less reading my book for people to listen to. And he tells a lot of fascinating things in this book about his own life. For instance, he grew up in Georgia and all of his friends were African-American. When he was growing up, he was a little kid. That's all he knew. That was all of his friends. And so that really shaped his upbringing and his view uh, towards racial justice as he got older. Uh, really affected him. And so uh, he tells a story about when he was a senator, a state senator in the, in the state of Georgia, and uh, the schools were already becoming legally integrated. So there was no more segregation among, you know, separate but equal schools. So um, African-American kids and uh, white kids were going to school together. That was already starting to happen. But here's the thing. He says he lived in Plains, Georgia. He said that what happened was some African-American Christians started attending or going to white churches and they weren't allowed in. So there was a a Methodist church in Plains that had a big stink because some African-Americans came to worship the Lord and the white Christians wouldn't let them in. This is in the mid sixties, I think. Uh, So this is in my lifetime. This isn't in the history books. This is in my lifetime. And uh, so what happened was the deacons who led the church, there's 12 deacons. He's one of them. He's a state Senator uh, and he's a deacon. And so the deacon, the head of the deacon says, look, we got to we got to nip this in the bud and we don't have any problems. We just need to have a church vote because the church vote set the standards. Uh, We need to have a vote that no black people can come to our church as Baptist church. And Carter, whoa, totally had a different view. And he argued against it. And they said, well, we're going to, there's a 12 deacons, 11 want it. And uh, Jimmy Carter is the only who doesn't. So they called the church together for a vote. Normally he said at a church business meeting, 40 people came, 200 people came to this one. 200 people. And so the head of the deacons makes his case. No black people at our church worshiping the Lord makes his case. I have no idea where he got that case, but somebody got that case, made the case for it. Jimmy Carter makes his case and they throw it open to a vote. Jimmy Carter's family, five people voted to integrate the church and one other person voted with him. 50 people voted to keep the church white only. 150 people-ish didn't vote at all. They abstained. And he said that afternoon, the call started coming into him. People telling him, oh man, I really like some of the stuff you said, but man, my boss is in the church and he voted. And so I, it, would, it would hurt my job if I voted my, basically the right way, my conscience. And then someone else said, yeah, well, my mom's in the church and uh, she has a different view. And this, they started giving all these excuses of why they didn't stand up. And I read that story and I thought the culture was already integrating the schools. And yet the church was staying, uh, was by vote, staying segregated, worshiping the Lord in a separate manner. And it just, it just thought, I thought how tragic that is. And that attitude gets passed down generation to generation. And really it is the church that should be setting the standard in this way. It should be the church where of anywhere in the culture, you could see a, a white person, an Asian, Hispanic, African-American, Middle Eastern, whatever the race, whatever the ethnicity, joining arms together in Christ 
and saying, we worship a God who welcomes any, to as many as received him. Jesus gave eternal life. He made them sons of the Lord. Whoever would come to him, I will never cast you out, Jesus says. And so I think in a day when our nation is divided, this is the hour for the church to be different, for the church to stand out because of Christ, for the church to say, we're not like the world. We, we live in a different kingdom. I, I, I'm thankful for the United States. I'm thankful to be a citizen here, but that's not my ultimate standard. The kingdom of God is my standard. And the kingdom of God says that everyone who is in Christ is one in Jesus. And it gives us this picture in the book of Revelation that here's what's coming. There is a day when heaven is displayed. It's people from every tribe, every tongue, every race, every nation, every people, all worshiping the lamb around the throne. They're all there. Nobody got voted out by the deacons. They're all there worshiping the Lord together. That, and, and I believe one of the reasons we get that picture is the Lord wants to say, that's where you're headed. And so that's what the Lord is doing right now is preparing us for that day. And that's a sign of the Holy Spirit among his people that we're starting to look like heaven now. Weak efforts, fallen people, we got our problems. That's why I'm talking about this stuff. We got our temptations, we got our attitudes, every one of us. But we wanna grow and we wanna represent the Lord in this and ask for his help. The key to seeing the answer to this question where he says, who sees anything different in us? One of the keys is to go back to the beginning of the Bible, to the creation account and read in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created, listen, man in his own image In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So the Bible teaches that every human is created in the image of God and intentionally says they're male and female. So not only does that passage, uh, not only does it prohibit racism or any kind of judging people by their skin color, but also by their gender. So male and female, both created with equal dignity, equal worth, equal value, all people created in the image of God. So Paul says, who makes you superior to someone else? The answer is no one makes me superior. I'm not superior. I'm an image bearer of God. You're an image bearer of God. You're an image bearer of God. Everyone in the room is an image bearer of God created with equal value, equal worth, and equal dignity. So when we look at someone else and begin to make an assessment about them, a judgment about them, that any kind of superiority that comes up in our hearts in any way, we need to be thinking of others as an image bearer of God. Now, the the image is broken in all of us. We're all sinful. We're all sinful. But still, even the most sinful person still bears the image of God in their life in some way. Our cultural differences are not to be ignored. So we're not colorblind, like there's no difference in anybody. But our cultural differences are to be secondary. What's primary is that we're unified in Christ. What's secondary is that we're male or female, or we have this background or that background, or from this country or this culture. That's all secondary, valuable, important, but secondary. What's primary is that we are in Christ so that we can be joined together. 
where we're all welcomed by him. And so the church is a place where people can join their lives together, not just in a building on Sunday mornings. I'm thankful to be able to worship and God's bringing increasing diversity in our church. And we're, we've prayed for that and asked him for that. And he's doing that. And I'm very thankful for that. And I think gathering in a building and worshiping the Lord together is a first step. But real unity is not just built in a church building, but it's built in a living room and around a dinner table. That's where real unity, when we begin to share our lives and build genuine friendships with people who are different than us, younger, older, richer, poorer, different races, any, any kind of difference where people are just different than me. Second question he asked, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? This is perhaps, I was thinking maybe the most devastating question in the Bible. If the first question kind of pierces the surface. This question goes straight to the core. The first question confronts our presumption that I'm somehow special in comparison to someone else. But this second question confronts really our gratitude. Do you really grasp what God has done for you? He's asking, what do you have that you did not receive? Corinthians, you are arrogant about so many things. Well, what is it that you have to show for yourself that you didn't receive as a gift to begin with. In some ways, I think the whole letter comes to this question. It's like, it's like the Lord is asking them, you know, who created you? Who gave you life? How can you, can you even keep your heart beating? It's the Lord that sustains you. All that you have is a gift. Who's provided for you? And this is a church in Corinth. These are Christians. How do you even know the Lord? What did you contribute to your, what did you contribute to your salvation except the sin that Jesus had to die for? What did you bring? What did you do to make yourself worthy of grace? What did you do to make God love you? What did you do to bring his favor in Christ upon your life? Nothing, nothing at all. Why did you even believe in the first place? How did you even come to hear the gospel? because of the grace and the mercy of God. Where would you be if Jesus had not given his life for you? If God had not provided a savior, where would you be? What do you have, Christian, in Corinth? What do you have, Christian, at Grace Church? What do you have that was not given to you by God? It's a question that causes us to stop in our tracks. Paul wants us to hear this and, and wake up. it's something that causes us to silence all of our arrogant boasts, to hush our criticisms of others, to be quiet with our self-righteousness, judging other people. It's a question that says, hey, get your eyes off everybody else. Look at me. What do you have that you weren't given by the loving God almighty? It's It's to bring conviction for sure. It's to make me go, whoa. Yeah, now that you mention it, that, that's a good question. But then I'm to repent of my lack of gratitude and I'm, my heart's to be warmed and I'm to overflow with thanks. This question is to bring thanks. Ultimately, we have forgiveness and eternal life because Jesus died for our sins, was buried and was raised on the third day. And we've trusted him as our savior and he's forgiven all of our sins and given us new life. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And so this is to produce a gratitude in us. What have we received? Mercy. What did we deserve? Judgment. So between judgment that we deserved in hell, 
versus mercy, what we've received, eternal life in Christ, everything in between is room for gratitude. Thanks to the Lord. Thank you for what you have done for me. The gospel will always produce gratitude because it's good news that God saved us apart from anything we have done on our own. The message of the good news of Jesus is that he did it. You received it. This is one of the surest signs that someone is living a life in light of the gospel. They're a grateful person. That's what he says. He's trying to cultivate gratitude in them. Paul was grateful. The Corinthians didn't like Paul, even though he founded their church. They opposed him. And yet he starts this letter saying, I thank God for you, Corinthians. Paul was a grateful person. He could thank God for those who opposed him. That's because the gospel was rich in his life. And where the gospel, that good news, where we're not living in light of what I deserve versus what I've received. When we're not living in light of that, then here's what happens in a church. Instead of people being grateful, they grumble. We, we complain. We're arrogant. We look down on other people. We get in disagreements. We're divisive. We have broken relationships. We're Corinth. That's what happens. When we lose our grasp of the gospel, we end up like Corinth. And that's why Paul is calling them back to the gospel by saying, what do you have that you didn't receive? And that's why we want to cultivate this good news of Christ. Every time we gather, you heard it in our songs. We want to sing about what Jesus has done for us. We want to hear messages from the scripture that highlight what Jesus has done for us. When we're having fellowship with one another, we want to be aware of what Jesus has done for us. And we want to be actively giving thanks. We want to be cultivating lives of appreciation to God because that's what the gospel produces in our lives. What do you have that you have not received? He's given it all to me. He's been good to me and I want to be grateful for him. Here's the last question. If you... If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So he's saying, if everything you have has been received, then why are you boasting as if you didn't receive it, but maybe you earned it or something like that? Wow, what a question. Here's the point he's making, is that it's foolish, it's sinful, it's just plain stupid to seek to boast about something you had nothing to do with. If you're new here, you may not know it, but we, uh, we've been in this building since April. We moved in last April, and it's just been a huge you know, transition year for us as a church that's just been wonderful. It's been really, really great. And, and oftentimes when I meet someone and conversation comes around to what do you do, and, and I tell them what I do, and then they say, well, where's your church? And I, 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 if they're in Frisco, I tell them where it is. They've probably seen it. Many have. And inevitably, the response is, Wow. That is a great location. Or when I meet other Christians or even other pastors, I've had numbers of other pastors say to me in the city in Frisco that I've talked with say, oh, wow, you guys have a great location. What a tremendous spot for a church. Now, I can boast and take pride in all kinds of things that I have no business taking pride in. But by God's grace, when people have said that one, it's never a struggle for me because I instantly tell them the story. I love to tell the story. The story that this land was given to us as a gift from a Christian developer who wanted to see a church planted in Frisco Square to proclaim the gospel uh, from the heart of the city. And so that was his doing. He's not even a part of our church. But we did nothing to get this location. We're not in this location because we're smart. Oh, yeah, well, we knew, yeah, we just planned it all out. No, we're not in this location because we're rich. We never could afford this land. 
We're not, we're certainly not in this location because we're holy. We're not, just, if you're new, just hang around. It won't take long and you'll find out, yeah, boy, you didn't earn it by your holiness. That's for sure. Starting with the leadership, but we're not here because we're holy. We're here because God gave us a gift of land that we couldn't afford and we didn't, that we didn't go looking for it. He brought it to us. He dropped it in our lap as a gift. What if we lived our whole lives that way? That's what Paul's asked. That's what he's after here. He's saying, if you received it as a gift, why are you boasting about it? I mean, how absurd would it be for me to say land that was given to us? Yeah, well, we really have, we're going to take credit for all that. The reason we're here is, let me tell you what we have done. Well, that'd be a very short speech. I don't have anything to say. What have I done? And that's what he's saying here. Why are you boasting? You have nothing to boast about. And that's why Paul describes himself in the way he does. That's why this whole exercise has been about Paul saying, look, Corinthians, you are enamored by leaders. You're putting leaders up on pedestals. Let me tell you what I did. I planted some seed. Apollos came after me. He watered it, but God brought all the growth. He's, Paul's saying, I'm a farmhand. I worked, I planted, but God did it all. In chapter four, he says, I'm a servant. It was someone who did menial tasks in the household. So he said, I'm the guy here doing the menial tasks. Look, you, you want to say how great everybody is? I'm just happy to do the dishes, okay? God is doing it all. It is God who receives the glory. God who receives the praise. Think of me this way, just kind of like a servant, just kind of like a guy working out in the field. That's how you should, should think of me. The gospel produces humility. This question is aimed at humility. If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? They're boasting in themselves, which is arrogance, or they're boasting in the people they're attached to. That's pride. He wants us to boast in Christ, so the humble person is the person who credits Jesus for all that he's done for him and lives in the good of that and celebrates that and experiences the joy of what Christ has done. Humility is not just focusing, like giving a lot of self, you know, um, you know uh, statements about myself, like lowering myself and saying, oh, I'm just a, a worm and I'm terrible. And I don't, you know, just, it's not like uh, feeling bad about ourselves. Like that's really humble. Just sort of being shy and uh, just sort of being super mousy or whatever. Th- that is not humility. That's focusing on me. If I'm focusing on me, that's pride. Humility is focusing on Christ and saying, he has given me all that I have and I'm thankful for him. He's my boast. He's my boast. I don't have to make self-deprecating comments. I have to focus on Jesus. That's genuine biblical humility. It's regularly looking to the Savior, regularly aware of what he's done, giving thanks for him, giving him the credit. Doesn't mean we're shouting in a, in a, you know, out of a megaphone at the street corner. It means that we're just living our lives aware of him, thankful for him, grateful for him. So you see how the Lord speaks to us through this passage. Paul uses himself as an example. Think of me this way for them to emulate that example. And then he goes to the core with these x-ray questions that pierce the heart. Who makes you any different? Who makes you superior to someone else? He's saying, you're an image bearer. I'm an image bearer. We're all created equal before the Lord and all are welcomed to, to come to the Lord. We're image bearers. I'm not better by any virtue of where I was born, what my gender is, what my background is, what my upbringing is, what my race is, what my opportunities have or have not been. None of that makes me superior to anybody. None of that makes me inferior to anybody either. 
We're all, who am I? We're all just those created in his image. Secondly, what do you have that you did not receive? It's all of grace. So we're to be grateful people. All that I have is from him. So we give him the praise for what he has provided for us. If you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? We're to be humble people, not boasting in ourselves, but in him. So do you see if when the gospel, what Christ has done for us, that's what produces this in a person. And that's what produces it in a community. And when a community gets this, where everyone really is welcomed and genuine friendships really are built among those who are different from one another. When, when that happens, the glory of God is on display. When people encounter the gospel and are, live a grateful life, when you encounter them, you encounter thankful, grateful people, not bitter, complaining, arrogant people, but grateful people. Boy, there's an, there's an aroma about that kind of community that draws people in. And when you find people that are humble, not boasting in what I can do, not boasting in our church, not boasting in anything, but Jesus, that allows the message of Christ to reach people. And that's a that's an appealing aroma as well, a church that's like this. And it's what the Lord wants to build in his people in every location that preaches the gospel. It's what the Lord wants to build in our church, that in a day when there is great division, may God bring a compelling unity amongst us that so testifies to the work of Jesus, that those who come into our midst and those who sing with us and hear God's word and build friendships and encounter those we reach out to, would draw this conclusion, surely God is in this place because I don't see this. I I don't see this in my day-to-day life. There's something different going on. That's the power of the gospel. That's the work of the spirit. That's the will of the Lord. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.